time is worth nothing if you don't grow. And if you don't grow, your company doesn't grow. If you don't grow, people around you don't grow. So it's all about your personal growth and your personal growth is just in your head. Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators. Brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Welcome back to the third season of Mostly Awesome podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators with foreign roots. With each episode, we want our listeners to not only get inspired by success stories of our guests, but also understand all the odds they had to beat to make it big. And today we are talking to Hundan, an inspiring CDTM alumnus and the founder of Y42, the company that is on the mission to build the most powerful and simple to use data tool that allows everyone to work with their data efficiently and collaboratively. In October 2021, the company and the Hun's able leadership raised one of the biggest Series A founding rounds in Europe. But before founding Y42, Hun lived a life of hardship and challenges. He was born in Vietnam and grew up with his grandparents while his parents labored here in Germany to make a mark for themselves. Later, when he was eight, he took a flight all alone from Vietnam to Germany to start a new chapter in his life. Imagine being uprooted from a culture so different at such a tender age, battling all the odds that are stacked against you in the next two decades and then going on to found a company that is on the way to impact the lives of hundreds of employees and thousands, if not millions, of data users. We've picked your curiosity, haven't we? Let's get a quick overview from Keke about what we discussed with Hun in this episode. We began this episode on a rather philosophical note. Hun shared his opinions on what truly brings happiness in the life of an entrepreneur and how the experiences that he had in his formative years moving from Vietnam to Germany as an eight-year-old, shaped him as a person. Hung and Y42 have a reputation for being obsessively product-focused, and in this conversation, we were able to uncover their motivation. Hung spoke about the first years of Y42 and how he went from not knowing programming at all to practically writing the entire front-end of the product all by himself. What also shined through this conversation was Hung's idea of value creation and how being a domain expert in this industry ended up being his superpower. On more than one occasion, he spoke about how entrepreneurs need to be judicious with their energy and also explained how his optimism permits him to stay persistent in the face of uncertainty. Like always, the episode concluded with Hung revealing his toolbox and finally, he kept alluding to his admiration for ClickUp and its founder, Zeb Evans. So here's another episode with yet another superstar founder who has set himself the lofty goal of making his product the new standard for data and creating tremendous value for his customers. We hope that you enjoyed the episode just like we did. So let's have a listen. All right, then we'll start. Welcome to the Mostly Awesome podcast, Hun, and congrats with a new founding round. That's very impressive. Hello, thanks for having me here. From our previous guest, Arsenio Vershinin, CTO of Personio, we have a question to you. What was the happiest moment of your professional life? That's a fantastic question. And I spent a bit of time thinking about it uh, before coming 
into the show. And I actually want to not give just a flat one sentence answer. So I would say in the beginning of a journey, when you start a company, I think your average level of happiness, if we're trying to quantify it, at least for me, it might have been like a four or five out of 10, right? So that's the average level of satisfaction that I've had starting out my entrepreneurial journey. But then again, when certain things happen and they work out, like first time a business angel actually tells you, hey, I'm going to invest 50,000 euro in your company, which is like super exciting. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 50,000 euros doesn't even get you through the year with one person. But still, it was the type of moments when you're like, I'm peaking, you know, the, the biggest peaks that you get. And then I would say it's like nine out of 10, you know, in these kind of moments and, and you peak really hard. And so that's like one of the moments, for example, you know, our first business angel says, hey, I'm going to invest 50,000 euro. Fun fact, this didn't happen until eight months later that this 50,000 actually hit our bank and we had our fair share of struggle. And then suddenly we didn't have money for that eight month, always expecting it's going to hit our bank. So uh, then the default state was like three or two out of 10. So you have like a lot of these fluctuation, but then you have like all of these extreme peak. Um, maybe another example, I'm not a coder, but then I was forced to code in my first company. And then when we went online with the product, there was a deadline that a, a client wants to use it. I can tell you that was one of the biggest festivals in in Germany, like 40, 50,000 people are attending these events and then they were just jumping on our tool to answer uh, survey questions. Um, and then it works for whatever reason. I cannot believe that it works. So these are the kind of moments that were really peak experiences and lots of moments of happiness, but they only happened during the first part of my entrepreneurial journey. But the second part of my entrepreneurial journey, I would say as things get more established and things get uh, a little bit hectic, then your overall level of satisfaction might be seven or eight out of 10. But then you're always on that level already. So I don't peak anymore to 10 out of 10. Uh, so even when we receive like our big funding round, right? I think my experience of getting the first 50,000 euros was way higher than getting the, I don't know, $31 million hitting the bank. So I don't get this level of happiness anymore, which is, yeah, a bit sad, but uh, I hope that answers uh, the question. Mm -hmm. And do you think there will be something in your life where you will peak again to 10 out of 10? Or would you say that it's something that you don't expect in your professional life anymore, but rather in your personal life? Or maybe you will say that, okay, by some reason, I don't need this 10 out of 10 at all. No, of course. I think life is made out of those moments that takes your breath away, right? That's at least how I look at it. So, so I want this peak experience. But I also want very stable satisfaction. So, so I'm happy to trade some of these peak experience with having, you know, constant eight out of 10 in life. So, so I'm, I don't need to be a four out of 10 to have the occasional 10 out of 10. But yeah, I certainly believe that at some point in life, there might be certain events where I can peak again. And I'm not sure. I don't know when it will be. I don't know when it will come. But maybe this is also the, the beauty of all of this that you just don't know. Yeah, indeed. Also interesting how you think about happiness in numerical terms. And speaking of data, you are with Wi-Fi currently pursuing a mission of enabling everyone to work with their data efficiently and collaboratively, no matter what their technical or business background is. Could you tell us a little bit 
about how and why did you arrive at the idea of founding a company that is tackling this enormous challenge? Or maybe in other words, why Y42? Why Y42? I think that's two different questions. Let me start with the first question. So I studied business because I always wanted to start a company. I want to be entrepreneurial. I want challenge. I'm chasing after these peak uh, experiences. Uh, and I feel that the most when I'm doing something so adventurous, like starting a company. So that's why I naturally gravitated towards business. I studied business management at the LMU. And then I entered the workforce. I started my own company um, in the event industry. And we were making quite some money at the time. We started out in 2014. When I left the company, the, the event company was operating in over 10 different countries in like 30 different cities. And by now they operate in 20 different countries plus. So, so not, not a small company, right? I would say my first rather commercially successful startup at, I think at the age of 24 at the time. But even though we were making like millions in revenue, the, the margin was just very, very small. It was like roughly 7% at the time. At the time, I was doing my master's in business analytics. So naturally, I was the guy that analyzes the data. So I would just pull data from all these different sources together. Um, in the event industry, you have a lot of survey answers. So you could do a lot of you know, very nice analysis there. I'm within the event company right now. We're operating in a lot of different countries. The margin was thin. I just jump in, analyze the data, and I actually improved the margin from 7 to 10%. So I felt really, hey, that's the real power of data. And since it's also my master's, I felt very inclined to, all right, uh, let's double down on that and start a company. And it actually started out in 2016. I sold my shares to the previous event company. I took that money. I started a company called Mitra Intelligence to focus on the event industry. And the event industry is an interesting place because people have a lot of data. Like, let's say you go to an Ed Sheeran concert. It's like 100,000 people going there, producing each one of them, producing 10 data points, already a billion data points uh, that you have to somehow handle. And the people that work in the event industry are not very data-driven or sophisticated. Basically, you need a solution that is super simple to use and intuitive and easy because otherwise people wouldn't consume it. But then you need a solution that is extremely scalable at the same time. So it's almost an oxymoron that you have to solve. And so it's the first time I enter the space. And of course, I didn't want to build a product because I felt like, hey, there's all tricks there's Tableau, there's like all of these tools that I'm using and I'm loving also, like, how can I build a better Tableau? How can I build a better Alteryx? So then I was just starting out as a consultant and I just uh, stitched together this, you know, pipeline for all of these event organizers out there. And it worked quite well. You know, you, you were making money. People were paying us actual revenue in a B2B context that I never had experienced before because it was the event industry is clearly... Uh, B2C. So I was very hype. And then cluing all of these tools together kind of sucks because they're super expensive and it doesn't always work. And I still have a lot of manual tasks for every new customer. The pipeline is not fully automated. And we just wanted to have a very native experience. There are just a couple of event use cases. So it's like a verticalized analytics app, similar to Chartmogul, what Chartmogul does for, for the SaaS industry. So I was like, okay, I went to the CDTM, I studied product tech management, and I'm just going to start a new company. 
uh, a new product, a SaaS tool, because clearly everybody was doing SaaS and I also wanted to join the fun. Great. And now maybe we can like go back a bit in your journey to when you came to Germany. And we were wondering, like, how would you describe your first experiences, early experiences in Germany? Not easy. I came to, to Germany at the age of almost nine. I grew up with my grandparents in Vietnam. And actually, I don't uh, even know my parents that well because they moved to Germany when I was two and three respectively. And they had the chance to study here, which, you know, was a great choice that they made. They did their PhDs here, so it took them five, six years. So I came to Germany, you know, first of all, hey, I don't even know my parents, right? And then they don't know me, I don't know them. And I came to Germany, like, it was third grade, and, you know, I came to a class where the kids have been clearly together for two years by now. And I'm just a complete outsider. I couldn't speak the language, so I couldn't speak with anybody in the first place. And of course, I was a very big like an outsider, right? And as a kid, you don't understand that. You know, you don't attribute that to the right things. As a kid, you just think, hey, everything is wrong with me. But it's just the wrong attribution mechanism because I should have attributed to the fact, hey, I come from a different culture. I don't speak the language. The kids have been together, you know, for like, two years by now, and I, I come in new, and I look differently. I was the only Asian kid also. So like all of this combined, right? And I guess at the time I didn't understand it. And so I learned to overcome a lot of you know difficulties in life, and I was very independent. I was actually by myself on the flight from, from Vietnam to Germany with a transit in Paris uh, as an eight-year-old kid all by myself, because clearly my, my parents didn't have the money to fly back and forth immediately. So I was a lot by myself and I was very independent and I had to overcome certain obstacles. And that just made me, I think, learn to overcome, learn to be very positive, learn to also have a lot of trust in myself. So yeah, I had my first share of struggle and I think that shaped me a lot also as a person. And at some point in my life, I felt like, hey, you know, this is not who I am. This is not my, my core nature. I'm a bit... Uh, I think I'm a very outspoken person and I felt like I became very quiet and uh, timid and hide myself. I didn't want to you know, expose myself. And that's against my nature. And I just felt like, hey, I'm not being true to myself. So I need to do something about it and went on a quest to actually unlearn a lot of these bad thoughts that I've had about myself at the age of like 16, 17, where I have a bit more mental control over my actions. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for sharing. I, I personally find it very interesting to follow your train of thought. <laughs> at at one, what point in this journey did you end up at CityTM or why did you join? And what were your experiences at CityTM? I had a very early exposure to the CDTM. So I was in the second semester of my bachelor's. So I was uh, by far one of the youngest members. Why did I take the CDTM? Well, at the time, to be fair, you know, it was not famous for being an entrepreneurial place. A lot of people would go to consulting. And I think my class was really the first one that was extremely entrepreneurial. Just mm -hmm. a set of, you know, 20, 30, 40 people, uh, I think it's like easily five to six unicorns coming out of it. Uh, so I, I was yeah, greatly affected by the entrepreneurial spirit there. And so, yeah, it was a great experience, but at the same time, it was one of the harder experience of my life because I was, you know, so young and I had to keep up with guys that are in the first or third semester of their masters. And they're just so ambitious, everybody there, and they're so smart, right? And 
clearly now we have the numbers to prove how many unicorns are coming out of these classes, right? Like so smart people. And I just always felt like hmm, I'm not enough, right? And that's that's the that's kind of the feeling that I've had enough already in my life. I'm not going to accept that. So this is why I put a lot of pressure on myself. But even with that pressure, I couldn't be the top, be one of the best. I wasn't. I, I was, I would say, quite average in the class, if not below average, which something that's just not getting in my head because I don't feel safe if I'm just average. And so it was a hard time, to say the least. I had a great network, right, from the CDTM. But you see that as somebody who's just below average, it was very hard for me to convince other people to join this journey, like at Mitra. And after a certain point, and I keep saying that, it's like the way you perceive yourself, right? Like if you feel like, hey, I'm worth it, then you're attracting a lot of different types of people. And now I feel like I'm worth it, you know, to attract these people. Maybe it's also a function of time, but time is worth nothing if you don't grow. And if you don't grow, your company doesn't grow. If you don't grow, people around you don't grow. So it's all about your personal growth and your personal growth is just in your head. It's not even your skills that you have. I think the skills, it's like the, these hard skills, you can learn them, but uh, it's the way your mindset, the way you perceive the world, the, the, the way you perceive yourself, the way you handle when challenges are being thrown at you, how you handle them, how, how do you get motivation, how do you get energy from what do you derive it. There's a whole different set of you know aspects that I can really talk about in company building. So to sum it up, CDTM, great experience, one of the very few entrepreneurial places at the time. I felt I was not good enough, but that's not really the driver for what I did afterwards. And what, what was the point when you realized or believed yourself that you are not just the average and you can do all these great things yourself? Mm -hmm. Was it at CBTM? Was it afterwards? It was afterwards, to be honest. It was afterwards. I had to deal with a lot of my personal demons first it's it's about energy and it's not in a spiritual way it's about how much energy do you have to face certain challenges how much energy do you have to iterate to move fast and i didn't feel like i have sufficient energy to to be successful and so i need to find sources of energy first that gives me that level of energy that then I come, can come in and say, I have enough energy now to solve this. And when I say to solve it, I think very objectively speaking, if you want to start a company, it's a very arbitrary number, but let's just say you have to solve a thousand problems and you have to solve a thousand problems and you need to solve 300 problems of this 1000 problems within a time frame of two years. Otherwise, people don't get motivated. You don't get motivated. So you need to be able to solve a set of problems. Each of these problems needs, on average, two iterations or like one and a half, because maybe you get it right the first time, probably not, Then, but hopefully you get it right the second time. You need a lot of energy to keep these iterations. And it's a horrible time to trying to solve these 300 initial problems because it's so much uncertainty that you have to deal with as a founder so I, i feel it is all about do you have this energy that you can just pile through that like a tank iterate through all of this still learn enough without any mercy and i didn't feel i have that energy because of multiple things in my life and so i feel once you have all of this together like you have your 
your hard skills, you have your energy level, you might even have some money, some resources. It just all comes together so explosively. And that's kind of yeah, the way I look at uh, when I felt like, hey, the energy is there. I think energy management is something that is really important and especially when you face a lot of hurdles in your life. So first question would be, how did you find the source of energy? And second, how do you manage it right now? Hmm. I feel one source of energy I always had was to take care of my family because, you know, I grew up not that wealthy and I'm the main person who's taking care of my grandparents since a quite young age. I felt I cannot fail because I don't want to work a nine to five job in the sense that I, I want to be very creative and I want to, to do my own thing and leave my own mark. And also, also certainly a negative way to recharge my energy is, hey, I cannot fail because, you know, otherwise I would be worth nothing again, That which is a very bad way of looking at it. But it actually even gave me energy. So kids listening out there, it's not a good way, but it, sometimes it works. So that's uh, energy from, you know, taking care of my family, energy from some sort of ego involved in it. And then another sort of source of energy that I have was, I was like, I've seen worse than this. So how can that be worse, right? Like, that's not so bad. It's like, even though it was really bad, it's like, ah, I've seen worse than this. I can continue. And of course, I'm very self-aware if I feel like, hey, I'm not operating at the top because I'm missing, you know, I'm lacking some sports or I'm lacking some some relationships with my family, with friends or with other people that, that I would somehow take the minimum time required to fulfill these needs at the same time. So not completely ignoring them. And yeah, I think I was very efficient at managing the 80-20 rule for any other parts of my life so I can continue, you know, uh, operating. And is there something that gives you a lot of energy right now at your current company? Yeah, I think there are two main drivers in my life. And the first one is to create a lot of value. So of course, I want to create a lot of value, like I said, for my family, like for my kids that they don't have to, you know, do what I did in the first eight years of my life. Yeah, let's say personal wealth for the family, for the people around me. I can take care of myself. Like uh, I have a personal trainer now. I have somebody that meditates with me once a week. So I can afford certain stuff now. That's very good for me. That's kind of it in terms of personal wealth because what else, right? Like what, what else do I need? I never even had a car in my life and I really don't need a car in Berlin. So then I fell into questioning, okay, what's next? Like how do we provide more value after I secured the, the first layer of value? For my family and so on then then i think okay but then i can you know provide a lot of value for the people i work with a lot of people here you know they're very good people and i think i will create also a lot of wealth for these people here and they are all good people so i'm sure they will do good also they will do good for their families they will do good for you know society and i see that immediately so i feel very you know proud and accomplished in, in that sense that there are people here growing they are succeeding, they can take responsibility for their family, for society, even grander, you know, responsibilities. And then, of course, I love creating value for the world, right? I love to automate everything possible because that's how society advances. I had quite some opportunities in my life to make a lot of money just, you know, by not creating value, maybe even extracting or, you know, a zero-sum game kind of situation. But that's, I was never drawn to that. I was always, hey, it's about creating value. And 
if you create so much value and you capture a small part of it, that's great. But it is about creating value for, for the world. I think we have the opportunity to build probably a data tool that, you know, has never existed uh, before out of Europe like this. And we're creating so much wealth also in, in Tirana, now opening up an office also in Ho Chi Minh City in, in my home country. So yeah, this is all very exciting stuff. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Many of our guests actually highlight the importance of family and value creation as main drivers. And for me personally, I find it's very interesting how you reason about the concept of value creation. Because for you, clearly, it's not only related to building the best tool out there, improve the efficiency of the world, but also to the wealth of your employees around the world. So really cool. Um, now we would like to transition to our next block of questions, which relate more to product development, because you have really extraordinary approach to that, and we would like to delve deeper into this topic. Kun, we heard and also observed how your product development approach differs from many books aspiring entrepreneurs with. We also heard that one year ago, when the company Y42 or Data's Intelligence back then just started, you already had a comprehensive product, meaning different tools within one platform. And at the same time, you didn't have users back then. How did you approach product development and what were the reasons that you succeeded so fast with Y42? I tried it a lot of different ways. I tried to be a consultant. I tried to be you know, on the business side. And everything that I did was just not moving the needle. And the only thing that really moves the needle and that I realized is on the very macro level, it has to be a good product. It just has to create value. And you can bullshit yourself with some marketing slang, but it's very hard to you know, really move the needle in the long term. You might make one or two million in revenue or three or whatever, like very short term optimization right but the only true value that you create is by creating true value so it's the product uh, that you offer as a SaaS company and i've seen you know plenty of other companies also that just don't have a great product and that just tries to you know enter the market and trying with every possible a b split test whatever it is it's just it just won't succeed or very, very rarely. And so for me, it was very clear, hey, it has to be the product. Like, let's not bullshit ourselves, right? Like, that's the only value you can create. And of course, there is more value you can create by bringing that product to the market, explaining the value behind it and so on. So these activities certainly are very important. But at the very core, I was like, okay, product first. And so I went from a very business perspective to you know very technical and i coded a lot of the product because then it just goes faster and i actually became a quite good programmer over time so i just crank out code for the first eight months we built the whole data pipeline and make it accessible to everyone to work with data effectively and so it, it means we're building a very big platform you know with a very clean slate and this time i knew what we were building because i ran into a lot of technical depth in the previous company I ran into a lot of issues that were not resolvable. But this time, hey, if we really have a clean canvas, how do we uh, set it up from scratch in a very 
good way. And that also takes a lot of time, right? And it's not a classical startup because uh, clearly I came in with some assets also. So I could have sustained the company for a bit by myself. And, and so I just tried to think, hey, how do I build a fundamentally great product? And I'm sure it would just go crazy afterwards uh, if you really are convinced what you're doing. And once again, I've been in this market at this point already for six years. So I really felt I know what I was doing. And that's why I took this kind of decision to build a company from scratch with this. Probably not a good idea if you're a first-time founder trying to do the same approach to, to do like this big of a product all in one, just focusing on product, don't matter how long it takes you to monetize it. But that's how yeah I entered the game. And so clearly last time we kind of finished the product uh, for the first iteration. And yeah, and then we went to market and this is how... Yeah, I decided on the product. So what is the main challenge when building data-driven products for you? And does it differ from building a, a product that's not data-driven? I think there are a lot of different types of software out there. One type might be as just simple as we call it CRUD apps. You know, you create, read, update, delete, very simple products, marketplace, e-commerce, whatsoever. These are like the typical CRUD products, right? Not saying that e-commerce is easy. If you somehow have to have a lot of transactions running through the platform, then that itself is a different challenge. But the type of product that we build, it is a dev tool. So it moves a lot of data around billions or millions of rows and still has to be very scalable. And then we need to make the user interface of the product so intuitive. Yeah, these are like the two kind of extremely hard challenge. So we are being tutors to people that don't have exposure a lot to working with data and we're tutoring them to use data in certain ways. But at the same time, we have to be a dev tool that handles this huge amount of data in a very reliable uh, way. I think that's the, the challenge and I'm not gonna try to somehow brag in here, but I think that's the highest level of discipline of software that you can build. This is the tool that we're building right now. I don't feel that there are many companies, at least not in Europe, that are dealing with that level of complexity in terms of software building as we do. So it's very hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right now you're quite technical and have a very, very deep understanding of software product development. And I think most of our listeners without a technical background would ask you, how did you catch up on those skills? I think my, my superpower right now is that I have so much context about the customer being a BI consultant, about the business side, running Facebook ads for my events or understanding the business side of it, being a product manager, which you know is my main job right now, and being a founder, which is also my main job, so my two main jobs, and being a, an engineer who actually implemented Roughly three months ago, I think half of the entire front end was still my code. By now, it's not anymore, luckily. So I think that's a superpower. And the question is, do you have the time to build this superpower? If you do, I think you can build billion-dollar companies with that kind of skill set. I think you need that kind of skill set to, to have a good shot at building a unicorn. If you want to succeed in this SaaS space, no matter what kind of founder you are, if you're the business founder... I strongly urge you to be extremely technical because you optimizing your success chances so dramatically because clearly you're building a software product, so you should be technical. So that should speak for itself already. But it was more to the circumstances, right? I'm very naturally curious about different stuff. So I, you know, I learn, I study, I 
try out different stuff. I want to understand them. So that's certainly a character trait that, that helped me. But energy preserving helped me a lot also to iterate and power through, you know, this phase of failure when you start something new and seemingly so complex, such as mastering production software engineering. But yeah, I was thrown in that. I didn't have a choice. I was like, either I do it or we won't succeed. And so that's how I learned it. And as, as company is growing, what are the main challenges that you face from the technical standpoint? It depends which part of the platform, right? We are a multi-product company. So we have probably five products. And each of these platform by themselves has at least five players in there who are worth a billion dollars plus. So uh, very tough game with juggling all the balls at the same time. And I see my job as the following. I see my job as being an incubator for projects or for products that is facing a lot of uncertainty in the face. And I bring it from zero to, let's say, 10, 20, 30 percent. And then I understand what it takes to get there. And then I would hire somebody else or a team that brings it from 30 to 100 percent because the level of complexity has been reduced dramatically. Like a lot of risk has been taken out, but it's still very entrepreneurial to bring it from like 30 to 60 percent. And then I think the part where you are at in most enterprises, you bring it from 95 to 100 percent, which that barely has you know any risk involved in it, like very clear path. And so, yeah. I am the guy, I think I'm very good at incubating stuff, bringing it to zero to 30%. And then I have to learn and to hire good people, the right people to bring it from, you know, 30 to 60, 70, 80% of, of the product. And the challenge is, of course, finding, you know, people, aligning them on the, the goal, the mission, the vision, giving them the context that you have until this point, like giving them the context of the first 30%. That's the first challenge. And then enabling them to build it from the 30 to 70, 80%, you know, a process that enables everybody to work together, to, to share ideas, uh, to bring that from 30 to 70, 80%. It's another set of challenge. The way we transfer information, the way to onboard new people, finding the right people, motivating them versus incubating new stuff and the reason why i love coding or like why i love SaaS so much is all the knowledge is being expressed in code very you know explicitly it's like coding is a manual you just read through it and you understand of course it's a very detailed manual but yeah so much asset and knowledge uh, transfer already happening uh, within the process of coding the challenges that you mentioned that you expect that are obviously not normal with hyper growth Thinking about those challenges, what is like your biggest fear uh, going into this hyper growth stage at the moment? I must say I'm very optimist, right? Like when the class is like half, you know, empty or half full, I would say uh, it looks rather like three quarter full to me. So I'm very optimistic about everything. And I think you need to be like that in order to be to be a founder and a founder that just says, hey, I'm going to build five products in parallel instead of just one, right? You know, I'm very zoom out sometimes and I can zoom out and zoom in very fast. I'm always zooming out and it's like, wow, in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing that can fuck up anymore. Like we're at this stage, I feel we're just too big to, to die in a kind of sense uh, or like too successful to die. Worst case, we get bought by some random companies, you know, for a big sum at, as of this stage. So no, there is nothing that you know, would really keep me up at night in, in, mm -hmm. in that sense. Uh, 
where I'm, I'm worried about the future of the company. But in the, the moment of it, right, like there's a lot of things that I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. how can I hire our VP of engineering, VP of marketing? How would that person fit into the company? What happens when new people join? Do they still have the same drive and culture? What happens to the processes? Like, are we talking enough with the customers? What happens to growth? Are we closing enough clients for the next quarter? Are we going to be a billion dollar company in one year or in two years from now? In, in the battle of the moment, there's a lot of worries. Like even today, we just had our release and I hope there's no bugs, right? Otherwise, people will just scream at, at me first, scream at Maria also, but then at me. There's a lot of things that I'm always constantly worried about. But in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing that I worry about. So with all this things that you have in mind and you have to go through and think about next quarter and so on and so forth. Would you say that you sleep well? Um, I never sleep well because I never, I'm never satisfied, right? Like I'm constantly trying to improve. Like I'm constantly trying to grow. I'm still in that phase where I like, I just want to grow as a person. I want other people to grow. I want us to grow. And of course we are representing the company. So we need to grow first in order for the company to grow. So I'm just always unsatisfied. It's like I can build the greatest product and I still feel like, oh, it's like 10 other things that could be better. Maybe it's like, once again, ego, perfectionism, getting in the way. But then again, it's also a good driver. So I feel I might learn all of these bad habits now. But then at some point when, let's say, I don't work that intensity as I do now, I want to unlearn a lot of this stuff also just like letting go of a lot of these, let's say, characteristics that might serve the moment very well, but maybe not the long-term happiness, personal long-term happiness. So speaking of uh, long run and also like trying to stay zoomed out, like you can do that very well. Uh, what are the long-term plans with Y42? I think if we don't mess it up, we could be the new standard for data. My personal plan is to offer very affordable product that is accessible to a lot of people. That's like creating a lot of value, right? But it might not even be the best way if we want to capture value. So if we want to capture value, then maybe putting a very heavy price tag on the software and selling it to, I don't know, bigger companies uh, might be the better way. But that goes a bit also against the way I look at the world and you know the way I want to create value. So yeah, becoming the new standard for data, having a lot of people, preferably everyone using it, make it accessible to everyone to use data, automating the world, democratizing data, make it very affordable. That's the kind of plan for Y42. Sounds like a great plan. Thanks. (laughs) Speaking about your founding journey overall, what are the biggest learnings so far? And what would you advise to someone who is starting their own company right now? Think long-term, but act short-term. So keep your mind that, hey, you probably accomplish way more in five years than you can imagine, but way less in one year than you imagine, right? Like think long-term. And that's like a great sense of motivation. So my biggest advice to myself is really, no matter what it is, it will be okay. Because if you keep doing the right things, statistically speaking, you're just going to make it happen. And also things are not linear things are exponential but do you have enough energy to survive that first part of exponential that's the only question that you should ask yourself uh, if you want to start a company and if yes then it's a great journey because it is exponential in the long run 
Love it. Thanks a lot. Now let's move to our last block, which is called your toolbox. Great. Let's start with the first question. What is the book that everybody should read? Personally, I think How to Win Friends and Influence People is like a very classic book from Dale Carnegie. And I would just say that's so important, right? Noted. I think this is the most popular book by Dale Carnegie. Our first guest, Sophie, also mentioned it. What's the app everybody should download? If you are working in your company, I can strongly recommend you to use ClickUp. People will hate me after this, especially people who, who use Notion. But I think Gap will be one of those tools that will just uh, take over the world in terms of project management. So if you're on Asana, if you're on Jira, just trust me, swap over to ClickUp. Don't waste your time there. Great. Can also recommend ClickUp. What's the podcast you love listening to? I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, to be very fair. But I will listen to this one from now on. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's really good to hear. What is your routine that you follow? Do you have any? I have a lot of routines. I think about habits a lot. I think habits is the only way that makes you move in a certain direction because you just don't have that much decision power. Like it's about preserving energy also for very important stuff. Like Mark Zuckerberg goes a bit extreme with just wearing a gray shirt, right? That's what he said. And it makes sense that, hey, you don't want to think what you're going to wear. It's just wear one thing and then you save some decision power. You put yourself in position where you don't have much choice but to follow your instincts, to follow your habits. And then you have to create an environment where these habits are very much in force. So what are the routines that I follow? I'm setting certain stuff in my calendar that even though I feel like, oh, I don't want to, I'm kind of forced to because it involves other people where I have to show up, you know, and show responsibility. I actually have a coach now that comes to me at home once a week doing some meditation and yoga, not for the sake of spirituality, just for the sake of, you know, being self-aware. I set myself a habit to, hey, I have to work out at least once a week. I set myself a habit, hey, if I don't see my family once a month, like, that was a bad month. Another habit is to be more self-aware, like relaxing and noting your thoughts and feelings and just like labeling them in a day a couple of times. Like when a thought arises, you say, hey, that's a thought. Or hey, when an emotion arises, you just label it. And, you know, if studies have shown that the intensity of these emotions tend to decrease when they are, you know, unpleasant emotions. If you just note what they are so you're not being caught in the moment and you say, hey, that's a thought, that's a, an emotion that I have. So that's the kind of routine that I should actively do it, you know, for like three times a day for a certain period. Wow. It's one of the routines. I've never heard about this technique. It's in Headspace, like it's being promoted very strongly in Headspace, noting technique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Headspace is also a good app. What's the innovator, maybe with foreign roots, everybody should know? I think he doesn't have any foreign roots, but Zeb Evans is like the founder of ClickUp. Like, he's a great guy. I just love ClickUp. So he's a great innovator. Follow Zeb, guys. Why do you think it is the case that not so many founders with foreign roots? Do you think it's because of some legal issues that like Europe operates in visa principle? Or do you think they have too many hurdles? Or I mean, it's so obvious, right? 
like in my case, for example, it's really stupid for me to go down that road. Like I have a family to take care of. Like I have to send my grandparents money home. How, why would I do that? Why would I start a company? It's just such a unreasonable choice for me to make at the time. And I still made it. So for me, it was super clear. And I'm sure a lot of other first generation immigrants have the same issues, right? They have to take care of their family and they cannot just freely assume that, hey, if I don't have a stable job, everything will be all right. That's not the case. Like maybe only 20, 30% might be you know, affected by that and other have like great families that can still support them. But then again, even if they can support them, your parents, they're teaching you a lot of stuff about security because they are just immigrants themselves or they're not even with you, right? And you're just here all by yourself. They're just teaching you about security. And that's a strain of thoughts that you have as a child that it's very hard to get rid of. So that's why you don't have that many, I would say entrepreneurs. I think innovators may be a different word. Maybe you can be great innovators still within you know, academics where security is still a lot there. But I'm particularly talking about entrepreneurs. Great, thanks. And lastly, what would be the question that you want to leave for our next guest? My question for the next guest would be, do you think it's possible to have a child and a company at the same time? Thank you. We'll make sure to ask that. And that would actually be a wrap. So, Hong, thanks for being with us today and very openly sharing your experiences. And I think a lot of our listeners will find this conversation very relatable. I know I did. And hopefully we'll take meaningful learnings out of it. And yeah, we wish you best of luck with Y42. And we can't wait to see where that journey takes you next. Thank you so much. This season of the Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Svajit Sakuja, Anne Christine Ga, Yulia Kozlovskaya, and Miriam Schmidt. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you are listening on and share episodes with your friends who might be interested in topics we discuss. We'd like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox podcast at cdtm.de is open for warm interest. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks.